Morning, everybody. I said morning. I'm not used to saying good, good evening. I don't get to do a lot of night stuff. I really like Sunday nights because, especially at our church, it's a little bit more intimate, a little bit more of a family environment, and you're just a little bit more comfortable. And, you know, you, last time I spoke at our church was, I think, at the baccalaureate. And, and I stood up, and sound was cutting in and out, and in and out, and Chad was working the sound, Chad Wallenberg, and I looked at him and thought, man, buddy, you're dropping the ball, but that's okay, I'm still your friend. And then I get off, and he said, you have the microphone on upside down. <laughs> so I appreciate the fact that he can call me out, and I can kid him, and we can be a family and a little bit more comfortable, and it's not so much of a formal social situation. Because I'm, I'm a little bit, you're not going to believe me, but I'm a little bit of an introvert. Like, social situations really worry me. Like, in the middle of the night, I'll wake up, and I'll imagine these scenarios and think, is there a way to get out of this? Is there a way to work this out without offending anybody? And it's really confusing and hard to do. And I'll give you one of those, and this is unfortunately not something I imagined or something I dreamed. It's my life. I've got a mother-in-law. I love her very much. Her name is Becky. It's Elizabeth's mom. Now, Becky knows I despise turkey. I hate the stuff. I don't get it. I wish Benjamin Franklin would have gotten his will, and, and, and we wouldn't have made turkey the national bird, so I wouldn't have to eat it at Thanksgiving. When I was three years old, I choked on a piece of turkey at Luby's and puked all over the whole restaurant, and I've hated turkey ever since. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. I hate the smell, I hate the texture, I hate everything about turkey. And my mother-in-law really likes to make turkey. But she likes to try to trick me. So let me tell you what she does at the end of every Christmas holiday, turkey's like three cents a pound, five cents a pound, because nobody wants to eat that stuff if they don't feel guilty otherwise. It's, beef is never three cents a pound, I promise. So anyway, when it's three cents a pound or whatever, she will buy all these turkeys, and she'll cut them up like chickens and fry them like chickens. And that's probably less disgusting than every other way to eat a turkey, but it ain't a chicken. Doesn't taste like a chicken. It doesn't have the texture of a chicken. When you chew it, you gotta squeeze a little harder with your teeth. It's just wrong. But when we sit down to family dinner and I see that she's made these obnoxiously sized pieces of chicken that aren't chicken, and she says, We're having fried chicken, I have this social dilemma that I've gotta fight my way through. And I've gotta find the solution because one of two things can happen. I can just be a nice, kind son-in-law and eat it and smile and say, thank you, this is wonderful. At which time she will say, see, you don't even know the difference. It's all in your head. You can't even tell. Did you know this is turkey? This is turkey. It's not chicken. I tricked you. I outsmarted you. Or I can be the obnoxious jerk that I kind of want to be and say, Becky, I see that you made turkey and pretended like it was chicken. I'm going to pretend like I like it if you don't say, this is chicken. Can we make that deal? That doesn't go well for me either. There's no winning in that scenario because it's awkward, because it's difficult. And there are some things in life that you get there and it's intimidating and you feel like it's a no-win scenario. Church, to an outsider, is on that list. Think about it. Where else do you go that you sing more than one song? Nowhere. Where else do you go that people still wear suits and ties? Nowhere. 
You know, I saw the number one reason people don't come back to a church. The number one reason people don't come back to a church after they visit is because the church welcome time offended them. Somebody shook their hands and it freaked them out, and so they took off and never came back. Do you know the number two reason people don't come back after visiting a church? Because nobody shook their hand during the church welcome time. Everything we do is very difficult, it's confusing, and you watch these things, and we say, why do we do that? And even weirder than action sometimes is appearance. I have a job. Doug just cut me off because he didn't want to hear that. I have a job where I wear a dress and take a little wooden hammer and hit a desk that's already put together while two grown men argue. And I, one of the things I had to really wrestle through is I really felt called to be a judge is, you're going to make fun of me, but the idea of wearing a dress all day really intimidated me. And it's hard. They don't teach Guys, you don't know how hard it is to wear a dress. Every time you sit down, if you don't do this little thing, you plie, it gets hung, and you sit, and you can't lean forward, and you can't even grab your pen, and you can't get up. And then, if you don't do it just right, my wheels will suck up the, the robe and wrap around it and twist and intertwine in this way that is unresolvable. Now, imagine you're trying a murder case. And that guy's life is in your hand, and there's victims in the courtroom, and there's 14 jurors that are scared to death because they don't know what's going on, and you're trying to be serious and somber and decide complicated legal issues, and all of a sudden, whoop, you feel those wheels pulling your robe down. Then you try to get up, and then you've got to take one half a step down. For me, in cowboy boots, while wearing a dress that's trying to kill me. Like on Doctor Strange when his robe goes alive. It doesn't make much sense. But I'm going to tell you why a judge wears a robe. And I promise we're going to get somewhere. Just, just stick with me. A judge wears a robe because it's the color black. And he covers his whole body in the color black. Because that judge represents everybody. Every color in the rainbow Red, white, blue, black, purple, green, pink. All of those colors are included in the color black. 100%. And it's my job to represent justice for everybody. And so I cover myself in black when I go in the courtroom to show that. Now, and when I understood that, when I didn't actually know that until I went, went to the U.S. Supreme Court and saw the exhibit on John Marshall's life and he was the guy who started wearing a black robe and when I did that I thought you know maybe it's worth it maybe it's worth it to wear that hot robe all day because it's a reassurance psychological or not it's my job to represent everybody and sometimes understanding those things why we do things why we dress why we look the way we do helps us to understand a passage to understand our role and today we're going to turn we're going to be in Revelation. We're going to start in Revelation chapter 1. We're going, to make our make, we're going to make our way through Revelation chapter 2. It's kind of funny. Jesus said the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And I let Andrew preach before me. And he preached my text. The same scripture we're going to talk about tonight. I felt led. I wrote this message before Andrew stood up and preached. And I worked through things and started to change it. But 
God really took us in two different directions. But we're going to cover some of the same words of Jesus today that we covered last week with Andrew. If you'll just bear with me, I think God gave us two different things to say as we look at it. But I want to read Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 12. I'm going to read through 20. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a long robe with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow. His eyes like a fiery flame. His feet like fine bronze fired in a furnace. And his voice like the sound of cascading waters. In his right hand he had seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was shining like the sun at midday. And when I saw him... I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is and what will take place after this. The secret of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, a lot of times right there is when we get lost in Revelation and we kind of get a little weirded out. And maybe we say, oh, I think maybe I need to read some Psalms. And we go back to Genesis or we move back to something else. And we never get past that very first passage in Revelation. Because it sounds a little weird. It sounds a little hard to comprehend. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to take, to start off, to lay some context before we look at the letter that Jesus wrote to Ephesus, before we talk about that, which is where we're going to camp out today. I want to take a little bit and I want to lay that picture. Now, one of the things that changed my life, really changed my life, probably six, seven years ago during Sunday school, college Sunday school over at the Haven building, we had an art student and his name was Jordan. And I noticed when we were going through, I think it was something in, in Judges, he was drawing the scenes out. And so I asked him, what if we go through Revelation and you draw the pictures as we go? And he had, he had some butcher paper and he drew it and we drew out these scenes and he put these perspectives. And it helped me because I'm a really literal person and I'm not very good with, with well, my right brain really doesn't work. And so it's really hard for me to picture these things. And Jordan helped us go through it. And I want to realize a few things. When we say Jesus had fiery eyes, Jesus himself said the eyes were the window to the soul. I think those eyes represent his passion. What is he passionate about? Well, we know that in his hand are the seven churches and the seven stars, the seven pastors of those churches, the seven angels of those churches. He is passionate about what he's possessing, about what he's holding. And it, it's an infinite passion. His white hair, white hair always represents ancient, timeless wisdom. Whether you're talking about the Lord of the Rings, you've got Gandalf the Grey, the wizard. And then he comes back to life and gets more powerful when he's Gandalf the White. And even Santa Claus... All through our culture, all through our society, all through human nature, there's something about white hair that we associate with righteousness and fairness and goodness and timelessness. It says he has feet like bronze. His feet are pure. They're unsullied. They're unstained. 
and you're strong. His voice is like a waterfall. I can't think of anything in the world that is a better example of a comforting noise than a waterfall. It is as noisy and as powerful and as raging and as intimidating as anything in the world. Yet there might be no more peaceful place in the world if you've had the chance to go inside a waterfall, to go behind the water so that that noise is on your side and protecting you. It's still noisy. It still eliminates everything else. But there's a comforting, powerful peace in that sound, in that voice. And he says that out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword. Now, that's the part that a lot of us get pictured and we get a little confused because we picture, I picture like almost this video game character with this great big sword that the mouth can't move around and, and maybe... Maybe, like, it'd be hard to understand and hard to speak and all those things. And the thing that really changed my life, I, I, I really mean this, is when Jordan drew this picture and he drew the sword as Jesus' tongue. The Word of God, the Bible says, is a double-edged sword. It's powerful. We spend a lot of time talking about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And when God speaks, there is a power, there is a, there's a might, the ability to divide between flesh and marrow and sword and spirit and bone. The ability to have words that never return void. There's a power, there's a majesty, and there's a relevance to the things that He says. And the seven stars and the seven lampstands, like we talked about. That passion, that rage, that power, all of those things are included when Jesus has both his hands filled with us, the church, and his people. And that's the backdrop, that's the picture that I want us to look at as we get into the text that we're going to talk about today. And we're going to look at chapter 1. We're going to read from verses 1 through 7, the church at Ephesus. Now, Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches. There's a lot of discussion. What, what do these churches represent? How Are these regions or continents or types of churches? Are there only seven active churches? Are there seven churches John knew the address to to put a stamp on? What's the deal here? Here's what I know. I know the Bible says that all scripture is useful for teaching, every bit of it. And these are the seven churches that God had something to say to them that he needed us to hear, so they got preserved in his word. And that's good enough for me. So we're going to pick up now in this first letter, and we're going to read, starting in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands says, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, that you cannot tolerate evil, that you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You have found them to be liars. You also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. Otherwise... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent, yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
Now, this is the message that Jesus sent to the church at Ephesus. And he says, though, anyone who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So today, if you've got an ear, this message is for you. And so as we look at this, the first thing I want us to talk about is the way Jesus identifies himself. When he says, listen to who's talking. He says, the one who holds the seven stars and the seven lampstands. Jesus identifies himself by us. We are, the Bible says, his peculiar treasures. In Exodus 19.5, it says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Your Bible might say, my peculiar treasure. And although the whole earth is mine, he says, I own it all. Everybody who breathes is because I gave their lungs air. But you're my people. He wrote that to Israel. But the Bible is clear that we are his people now. His peculiar treasures. His treasured possessions. And he identifies himself by us. One thing... I always knew when I played high school football, my mama was going to be sitting in the stands yelling real, real loud with a big old button that said number 66 that had my picture on it. Now, I'll tell you, I never fumbled when she didn't jump up and down because she thought I made a real good play because they said my name on the intercom. Not one time, but I knew she was cheering for me. 100% of the time. There's something special about that pride that comes from when it's your kid. My son can make me prouder than I could ever make myself. Can make me happier than I could ever make myself. And I identify myself as Cade's dad. And in that same way, he says, the person writing here, I'm writing you this letter and I hold you in my hands. Now think about all that that symbolizes. Now, these same hands, Jesus said, whoever the Father has placed in my hands, I shall lose none. You can't fight yourself out of Jesus' hands. Other people can't fight you out of Jesus' hands. He is stronger and more passionate, and those fiery eyes will defend you with those hands. And he says, I'm the guy who holds you in my hands. We're safe in his hands. And that's how he begins this letter. And then he says, I know your work, your endurance. He gets us. He understands us. Second Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He knows what those things are. He knows the things that struggle us, the things that we struggle with, the things that, that haunt us, the things that we worry about, the things that overwhelm us. And he says, give those to me. Because I care. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You know, when I went to law school, the logo at, at OCU was uh, where, you're a, where you're a name, not a number. And the, the president, I don't remember his name. Let's call him 4456 because he was a number. The president would, would always come on the TV and he'd the little screen thing there on campus and all the billboards, and he'd say, well, you're a name, not a number. Well, then one day he was in a hurry, and we were having some kind of ceremony, and he shoved somebody out of the way. And so somebody did a little cartoon that says, out of my way, 442. Because he got paid to say I was somebody's name. 
And that's all I was to him. I never met him. He never met me. There was no relationship there at all. But Jesus says, I know you. And he knows us with an intimate knowledge that we can't surprise him and we can't disappoint him and we can't fear that he'll find something out that we don't know and he will never miss a play. Now, I talked a little bit about my mama sometimes yelling because I fumbled. I, when I coach Cade's football team, there's 11 kids on the field, and after every play, all 11 kids run up and say, how'd I do? Did I make my block? Did I do what I'm supposed to do? I have no idea. There's 11 of them. I got two eyeballs. I'd pat them on the head and say, good job. Now, if they missed a tackle real bad, or if they fumbled or threw an intercept, I know that. They scored a touchdown. If somebody else is on the ground crying and they were supposed to hit them, that was probably good. But for the most part, I don't know what all 11 did at once because I have finite eyes and I can't do it. But Jesus has never missed a play in the history of humanity. He's never missed a moment of our lives. He knows every aspect, aspect about us. And you don't have to have that insecurity. You don't have to have that, I hope the coach was watching. Or, oh man, I hope the coach didn't see that. Because he knows it all. And this God who knows everything about us is the God who says, I hold you in my hands. And nobody's taking you from me. The same God who knows us is the God who holds us. And we can't understand that. Sometimes we feel misunderstood. Sometimes we feel like people don't get us, people don't understand us. And sometimes other people know us better than we know us. On Saturday mornings, a lot of times, Elizabeth will cook breakfast. And she'll always ask me, honey, how many eggs do you want? And I'll always say two, and she'll always cook three, and I'll always eat three. Because she knows how fat I am more than I do. She knows me better than I know me, and she knows what I need and how much I'm going to eat. I can trust her. Now, I think something in me, macho, wants to be, I'm a physically fit man, I only need two eggs. I've got to impress my wife. And she looks at me and says, who are you kidding? And she makes me three. Every one of us, every one of us struggle with the concept that we're an imposter. Every one of us have moments when we think, what if people knew how clueless I am? What if those people at church, at my school, at my office, in my family, down the hall, in the cubicle next door, at Walmart knew how much I'm faking it? How bad I am at this. How intimidated I am by this situation. How many mistakes I've made. How many problems I have. How hard it is for me to figure this out. How confusing it is. How annoyed I get when these things happen. How frustrated I get. How when I shut the door and no one else is around, I just rage and break down. And we have these insecurities where we feel like if only people knew the rest of the story, I would fall apart because I'm an imposter and I'm a fraud. And we all fear that about the world forever. That's why I like coming somewhere like this on a Sunday night where I know everybody where we know each other, because there's an intimacy there. But even in people we're friends with and close to, even with our spouses, with our families, we all have this worry, this fear that we're not good enough. That there's something that if you knew about me, you'd never listen to me again. It's just natural. I promise you, 
I'd like to think there's nothing you could tell me that would make me think differently, but it's not true. It's just not. There's, there's terrible, horrible things that would totally change the way I see, see us. And I hope none of those things are true in this case, but I'm human and flawed. And if I found out that you were a serial killer, it would affect how I felt about you. Jesus knew every bit of that when he died for you and me. Before Abraham and Isaac were, I am. That's what Jesus said. Before they were, I am. He has no limits, time or space. And he knew you when you were born, when he died for you, and as he wrote this letter and said, I hold you in my hands my strong hands that I'll never let go. He knew you. He knew me. There's no secret to hide. There's no surprise. There's no false modesty. There's no veil to hide behind because he knows us. He knew you when he made you and he knew you when he died for you. And when we get that real, when we lay it all on the table and we don't act and hide like Jesus doesn't know our deep, dark secrets and we have to be fake for him and get all our these and thous dotted just right, and we're real, there's an intimacy there. The kind of intimacy that lets us hear the stuff we don't want to hear. The stuff that it came, if it came from anyone else would shut us down. And Jesus has some tough messages here. He says in verse 2, You have tolerated many things for my sake. He says, yet you endure. You, he, you continue to endure and you've tolerated many things for my sake. Tolerated. A lot of times we try to preach this grand, grand Christianity that, that is like a get out of pain free card. That is, everything's okay. Then I got saved and then everything was hunky dory and I wrote a song and it was all great and we had no problems. And that is just not the Christianity of the Bible. Everybody in the Bible struggles, suffers in horrible ways. God gets them through it. But there's pain after pain after pain. That's the way God made us. Jesus gets it. He gets that the Christian walk can be frustrating because allegiance is not easy. And because of that, he says, you have tolerated many things for my name. It's okay if you don't feel like coming to church, but you still come to church. It's okay if you don't feel like standing up and singing and you still sing. It's okay if you don't feel like doing the right thing and you still do. It's okay. Jesus knows that. I always think when I read this passage, we had this dog, and her name was Belle. And Belle was a, was a little American Eskimo, looked like a little sled dog. And Belle was blind and diabetic and had a pretty rough life. And she'd just run into walls all day long. But she loved Cade like nothing else. And Cade would get her up on his top bunk where he slept, where if she fell off, she would die. And Lord knows, she couldn't tell where the edge was, so that was a real possibility. And he would take his trains, his Thomas the trains, and put them on her back and just choo-choo and do those trains all up and down Belle's back for hours and hours. And Belle would just sit there and turn her head in my direction and just have this look that says, 
I am tolerating this because I love this child. Bell loved Cade so much, Bell did not love Thomas the Train at all. For the record, I don't much like Thomas the Train myself, so I get it. He says, I get it. I know that you tolerate these things. You don't have to act like you've got it all together, like this is all easy, that this is all stuff you want to do. There's a lot of things that God calls us to do that aren't fun. There are toilets that need to be cleaned. There are ditches that need to be dug. There are unlovable people that need to be loved. There are all kinds of things that God demands that we do. And we don't have to act like it's fun. Because he knows how we feel about those things. But he says, I have this against you. You've left your, left your first love. And I want to start back at four and keep reading again. Or start at, third, at three. You also possess endurance. And you've tolerated many things because of my name. And you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Now, I want us to unpack this because it seems very contradictory. He says, I understand you're tolerating all this stuff and you've not grown weary. And you've, you've had endurance. You've kept going. You haven't given up. So go back and do the things you did before. The things he just said you're still doing. But you've left your first love, so go do the things you did before. Keep doing what you're doing because you weren't doing it, but you're doing it. That's pretty hard to get our mind around. That's a pretty difficult concept to understand. He says, I know you're tolerating this. I know you're enduring. I know you've not grown weary. I know you're still doing all this stuff. Now, here's the fix. Do all this stuff. The reason it makes sense is the passage in the middle. He says, you've left your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Why we do things matters. The difference between a murderer and a hero is why he's swinging that sword. Is it to protect somebody or to take a life? Why we do things matters. It's all about him. Tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all because that's what you do every day and you're in a rut. Is that what it says? No. Do it all for the glory of God. Why we do what we do matters. Why we sing, why we praise, why we love, why we reach people, why we stay away from the, God, the stuff that God tells us to stay away from, why we give of our time and our money and our effort and our breath and our emotions and our heart and all the things that we pour out for God and his people, why we do that matters. It's not enough just to do, be the guy who checks all the stuff and then says, oh, I did that because I'm supposed to do that. I got this checked on the list. We do it. Because God calls us to do it. See, they've not grown weary, but this is not a stamina issue, it's a heart issue. He says, I want your heart. I miss you. I miss time with you. And he says, 
what to do about it. How do we get our passion back when we've lost it? How do we get our focus back when we've lost it? He says, remember the height from which you've fallen. Do the works you did at first. Now, I remember when Liz and I were, were first dating. We first got married. Everything was exciting. Everything was new. I like to think it still is most of the time. You just literally shook your head in front of everybody? I say to you, remember the height from which you've fallen. (laughs) The truth of the matter is, when we got saved, when we first knew the joy of forgiveness, it changes us. I will never forget being nine years old and walking into a church because my sister gave me $15 to go to a revival. Walking out confused. Sitting in a farm truck with my dad and him leading me to Jesus. And realizing the purpose of life. Realizing that everything about me was to glorify him. And my life had meaning and purpose. And I was nine years old. And (laughs) there was a lot of things I didn't understand. And a lot of things. If I took some theology test, I'm pretty sure I'd have been labeled a nine-year-old heretic. Because I didn't understand a lot of, still don't understand a lot of things. But I was passionate. I was excited. I remember going to school and telling my friends and being on fire and having that enthusiasm and wanting to read the Bible and, and wanting to, figuring out, well, I can't just underline everything because then nothing's underlined. Then I can't find anything because I've done it all. So I've got to, I can't underline that if I'm going to underline. How am I going to do this? I can be so, remember being so excited and so dedicated. And think back when you first knew the joy of your forgiveness, when you first realized for the first point in your life that you were a part of a bigger plan, that God had a desire to use you for his kingdom, to own you, to make you his servant. And he picked you. He picked you. Oh, I want a good feeling you're at recess when you're a kid. You line up against the wall, and whoever's the captain, they pick you for their team. I mean, unless you're like the last person, then it's not a good feeling. That's the good thing about Jesus being infinite. Nobody's the last person. He picked you. Remember that? Remember when he picked you? How excited you were? What did you do? How did you pray? This is one of those messages where in just a minute, we're going to have a time of response, and I want to do it just a little bit different. I want us to have a little bit of time when the worship leaders, they play a song just kind of as as white noise a little bit while we focus on our hearts. And Jesus says, remember the height from which you've fallen. So I want to take this time to remember. Remember what was it like when you were on fire, when you first knew that purpose, that joy of forgiveness, that passion, that being selected by God, that knowing that he holds you in his hands. Remember that. And take stock of those memories. What did you do? Who did you tell? Where did you go? What did you get rid of? What did you seek out? And make that list in your head. 
If you want to pull out your phone and make a list on your phone, you want to get out a notepad and write it, that's just fine. You can pray with your eyes open. I won't tell Jesus. Make that list. Work through it. Remember the height from which you've fallen. And I want to say this. Now, you're here on a Sunday night in your designated pew. But if you can't remember the height from which you've fallen, and you can't remember a time when you knew that joy of forgiveness, I want to ask you, has there ever been a time in your life when you said, God, take me, I'm yours? Has there ever been a time in your life when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and he made you a brand new creation? Now, I'm not asking if you feel warm and fuzzy. Has there ever been a time when you gave your life to Jesus, made him the Lord, made him the owner of your life? A lot of times we talk a lot at Baptist churches about we'll have revival services, but we don't have revival. It's because there's a re in front of the vive. You can't, you can't reawaken something that was never awakened. And if there's never been a time in your life when you came to know Jesus as your Savior, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, no man may enter the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. If you've never been born again, there's never been a time in your life when you said, God, take me, I'm yours. Today is that day. Because the same God who says to these guys at Ephesus, I know you. He knows you too. He calls you by name. In a moment, we're going to pray. We're going to have just a moment that we can have some inward thought, some inward prayer. We can remember those things. And we'll have a time of response. Father God, thank you so much that you're here in this place, that you loved us enough to say, I'm the guy who holds you in my hands. Thank you, Lord, that we truly belong to you. God, remind us of that passion when our faith was new. God, help us to remember the height from which we've fallen. Help us to make a list of the things in our life that we did that showed that passion. And help us to do those things and renew our passion in you. And God, if there's one here who doesn't know you, who's never had that time when they said, God, take me, I'm yours. Give them the courage to take that step, to have that conversation, to be made new in you. Help them to know that this is a safe place where everybody here belongs to you. And we're going to love them. And we're excited to share this passion that you've renewed in our hearts. I pray this in your name.